you settle in this morning, I want to begin by asking you a very important question. And this is a question that I've asked a few times in here, but I want to ask it again this morning. And the question is this, how do you feel about the church? Do you get excited when thinking about the church or do you get depressed? Do you think about all the exciting things that are going on or just the things that are not happening? Do you think about the strengths of the church or its weaknesses? How do you feel about the church? When you think about people in the church, do you think about people you love or people who get on your last nerve? People you you can't wait to see or people you hope to avoid? Do you get excited when thinking about coming together and worshiping together as God's people or do you just view it as something you have to do? When you think about the church, what what comes to mind? What What are your thoughts? Are they positive or negative? Optimistic or pessimistic? Let's be honest, there is a lot of negative talk about the church today, am I right? Time and time again, we we hear things like, the church is filled with nothing but hypocrites. Or, the people of the church are just a bunch of narrow-minded, unforgiving, unloving people. There's a lack of love for those in the church today. And when I say church, you know I'm not talking about a building I'm not talking about a place, I'm talking about a people. There is a lack of love for God's people today. And oftentimes, it is those who claim to be God's people who are the most critical of God's people. I'm not just talking about the way in which the world thinks of the church, but the way in which God's people think of the church. This is a a big problem in our world today. Those who speak highly of God and claim to know Him and love Him do not share the same affections for His people. And some don't see any problem with that. They're like, what's the big deal? I mean, isn't the important thing that I love God and want to spend time with Him? And isn't the Christian life mainly just about me and Him? Many feel that way. They think the church is something that is optional at best. Something that is there if I need it, like a health club with personal trainers. You can join if you want to, or you can just stay home and hit the weights there, right? That's the way many feel about the church. And so when they hear about problems in the church and about how God's people are having a tough time getting by, they say, wouldn't it be better if we just went at life on our own alone with God? What's the problem with that? Well, I'll tell you. God makes it clear in his word that we are not to live our Christian lives in isolation, separated from his church. We have said this before, but I'll say it again and again and again. We cannot be who God has called for us to be without other believers. Think about this. 
How can you be faithful to love others and serve others and sharpen others and be sharpened by others, which God clearly says we're to be doing in his word if you do not associate with any other? Just makes sense, right? God makes it crystal clear in his word that loving him and loving his people are one and the same. There's another reason why we should love God's people, right? These two things are to be inseparable in the life of a believer. When asked what the greatest command, singular, was, Christ mentioned two. Love God and love your neighbor. Why? Why two? Because the two are interlinked. They are inseparable. John makes it very clear in 1 John that the way we can know that we love God is if we love others. Because when we are loving God as we should, vertically, what should naturally happen is we should love others around us horizontally. That's the way it works. And if we're not doing one, we're not doing the other very well either. John says very clearly in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, listen to this. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Been born again. That's what he's talking about there. Now, folks, that's about as clear a verse as we have in the Scriptures. So this is very important. And, and as we have said already, this is a struggle for us, which is why we are reminded of this important command over and over again in God's Word. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 20. In our passage for today and next week, we are going to see a great example of how we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as we look once again at the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul had a tremendous love for the church. And though it is not directly stated here in, in the verses we're going to look at this morning, the word love is never mentioned. It is clearly implied. For those of y'all who uh, work ahead and were reading ahead this week at the passage I was gonna, I'm going to talk about this morning. I'm sure some of you were thinking, wow, I wonder what Graham's going to do with that passage of Scripture. I know I felt that way when I, when I first looked at it because at first glance there doesn't seem to be a whole lot here. This passage, for the most part, is just a simple narrative. Now, that doesn't mean it's insignificant. That just means in this passage, in contrast to others, there's not much theology at all, nor does this passage come right out and give any clear practical applications that can be made by us. Though we're told that Paul teaches in this passage as he's traveling through Macedonia to Greece, and though we are told he teaches in Troas, we'll look at that next week, Luke does not tell us what Paul said. We don't have any content from his messages that we can take and, and outline and study through. In this passage, Luke is just explaining Paul's travels through Macedonia to Greece and back to Troas on his way to Jerusalem. Paul is in transition here. But as I spent time in this text thinking about it and praying for guidance through it, something became very, very clear to me in this passage, though it's not directly stated, it is clearly implied, and that is Paul's great love for the church. Paul loved the church. 
And we're going to see the strong affections that Paul had for God's people as we study through this text. For one, we've learned already that the reason why Paul is traveling all over everywhere is to collect money to provide for the Christians in Jerusalem. So his whole trip here that's recorded for us is motivated by love. So so that's one very, very obvious example of Paul's love for the church. But as we break this passage down, we see several ways Paul shows his love for the Christians that he ministered to in Ephesus and throughout Europe in Asia and to the Christians in Jerusalem. And I want to share each of these with you. First, I want you to see this, and you really have to look for it here, but I want you to see how Paul demonstrated his love for the church in the way in which he displayed affection for the Ephesians and Macedonians. That's point number one. Paul displayed strong affections for the Christians at Ephesus and Macedonia. Now, this is a very subtle point, but it's, it's clearly seen here. Look at verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, underline that word encouraging, he said farewell, and he departed for Macedonia. Now, at first glance, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot here, and I definitely don't want to make more of this than Luke does and and emphasize something that God doesn't intend to be emphasized here. But I do believe that we see here how Paul loved and cared for the church here. Notice the phrase, after the uproar ceased. Remember in the previous passage we looked at last week, there are issues at Ephesus. Now, Paul has been very fruitful during his time here in this city and really throughout Asia. He has been hard at work making Christ known and God is doing mighty works through this great apostle to highlight his great message through his great messenger. And there are many who are turning away from their their pagan religious beliefs and practices in this city, and they're making Christ the Lord of their life. But as a result of the success of the gospel, we also learn that Paul receives kickback from the non-believers in that city, from the Jews first, and then from the pagan Gentiles. Remember we talked about this angry, confused, closed-minded mob that had formed last week as a result of the success of the gospel. And they had taken these two Christians into the theater and, and it probably would have ended with their life coming to an end had God not intervened through his great providence. But it was a very chaotic and scary ordeal for the Christians in this city. Well, look at what Paul does for the believers in this area after this uh, chaos sort of calms a bit and before he leaves. We're told after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and we are told he encouraged them. Now the word translated encouraged here is also translated embraced in the King James and New King James. It's translated exhort in the NASB. The Greek word is parakalesis, which means to console someone. And that can be done non-verbally and it can be done verbally, which is why you have the words embrace, encourage, and exhort all used. I believe Paul probably did all of these things. He took time before leaving to bring comfort to these believers in 
Ephesus. He brought them to himself. He consoled them by probably embracing them and encouraging them and exhorting them. Paul knew what they were going through, did he not? He had stared death in the face more than a few times. He had been beaten for the cause of Christ. He had been stoned and left for dead. He had been in prison, and he had also been on the run away from those who wanted to kill him. But notice, his message is not, hey, I've been there, suck it up. That is not his message, is it? No, we're told he consoled them, he embraced them, he encouraged them. He did not simply give them the correct doctrinal answer for how to deal with suffering. He loved them, and that's a wonderful lesson for us when we are ministering to those around us who are suffering. Not to be quick just to give them the doctrinally correct answer for how they're to understand their suffering. No, we're to do what Paul did. We're to love on them. We're to embrace them. We are to encourage them, just like he did. Paul loved the church. He loved the church, and you can see that, not just in the way he served the church and in the way in which he gave to the church and in the way in which he taught the church and invested in the church, but in the way in which he showed his affections for the church. When he wrote to the Christians in Rome, Paul said this, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. He says, I long to see you. He tells the Christians at Corinth when explaining why he wrote this harsh letter to them, he says, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now listen to this. Listen to what he tells the Christians at Philippi and Philippians. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you making my prayer with joy. He says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul loved the church, and he loved the Ephesians in this way. When they were suffering, he embraced them and encouraged them, and we're told they did the same to him as well. Paul had a tough time leaving Ephesus. They didn't want him to leave. They were clinging to him, begging him to stay. At the end of Acts 20, we'll look at it in a couple of weeks, after Paul makes his final address to the leaders in, in Miletus, the leaders from the church of Ephesus were told there was much weeping on a part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him. That was common for the day, being sorrowful most of all because they would not see his face again. Paul loved the church, and they loved him. We're also told that as Paul traveled through Macedonia, he did the same thing with the believers there. Look at verse 2. When he had gone through those regions in Macedonia and had given them much encouragement, underline that word, encouragement, he came to Greece. So in verse 2, 
We're told that while Paul went through the regions in Macedonia, he gave the believers there much encouragement. Paraclesis is used once again. And there's another Greek word that translates that he gave a large amount, a great deal of encouragement. He came alongside them and he loved on them and encouraged them and he exhorted them. And believe me, believers, the believers there needed it. As Paul was traveling through this region, we're, we, we learn as we study that he was writing 2 Corinthians. He wrote 1 Corinthians while he was in Ephesus, and then after he left, as he was traveling through that area, he wrote 2 Corinthians. And we learn in 2 Corinthians 8 that the churches in Macedonia were suffering greatly for the cause of Christ. It appears as if the persecution that Paul and Silas had endured when they were there on their second missionary journey had not stopped after they left. The Christians were being afflicted and persecuted and they were extremely poor. So Paul passed through this region and he gave them much paraclesis. He consoled them, he loved on them and encouraged them a great deal. Paul loved the church and the church loved him and you can clearly see that once again in the affections that they have for one another. Believers, are your affections stirred for people in this church? When people are hurting, do you hurt? When people are rejoicing, do you rejoice? I think these kinds of relationships are lacking in many of our churches today. And the reason why is because we're too busy with things going on in our own lives to take time out for anyone else. And I know that is hard to hear, but in a lot of ways with a lot of people, we know it's true, right? And that's not good. When is the last time you invested in someone in this church who was hurting and you took time just to sit with them and listen to them and cry with them and pray with them and encourage them and pray with them some more? I know some of you are like, well, I don't know who's hurting and, and who's not. I don't know what the needs are. Just come by and see me and I'll tell you. I'm not going to reveal anything that's confidential. I'll just give you a copy of the prayer list. Let you know who's in the hospital who would love a visit or, or someone who's hurting who would love a card or even an email or a text just letting them know that you're praying for them. A lot of the time we don't know what the needs are. Therefore, our affections are not stirred for people because we have not taken time to get to know them. And if you're wondering how to do that, we got a lot of ways for you to connect small groups, men's and women's Bible studies. We have a list of things. And we don't ask you to be at every single thing. Some of you like to do that, and we're fine with that. But we want you to be connected in some way. That's a great way to develop relationships with those in the church. And you're going to be challenged to do that this week in your study guide. So Paul, he, he demonstrated his love for the church and the way in which he displayed affection for the Ephesians and the Macedonians. Another way we see Paul's great love for the church is in the way in which he sacrificially and tirelessly served the Christians in Jerusalem. Look at verse 2 through verse 5. 
We're told when Paul had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Now, let's take a look at the map once again. We're on Paul's third missionary journey here. And in this passage of Scripture, we learn that Paul has his sights set on Jerusalem. Do you see Jerusalem at the bottom there, circled on the map? He's got his sights set on Jerusalem. But look at the way he heads. Look where he goes. So the question we need to ask then If he is headed toward Jerusalem, why does he head up through Macedonia and all the way around to Greece? He's headed in the wrong direction, isn't he? Now, we know why he didn't sail from Greece to Syria to go back to Jerusalem. Luke tells us that. We learn that uh, he wanted to go that way, but he discovers a plot by the Jews. And Luke doesn't tell us what that plot is. Many commentators believe that there were probably some Jews that were going to be aboard ship that were probably going to throw Paul overboard. So he did not go to Syria by way of Greece. He didn't take a boat that way. But So we know why he didn't go to, to Syria right away. But why did he head in the wrong direction in the first place? Well, we learn that answer again in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, we learn that one of the reasons Paul went up through Macedonia to Greece is to stop by all these churches that he had started to take up a collection for the Christians in Jerusalem. The Christians in that church in Jerusalem were struggling. At this time, they were extremely poor. They were struggling in a lot of ways. And so what Paul does is he goes to the extremely poor churches in Macedonia to collect money for them. We're told that the Christians in Macedonia, they gave out of their poverty to support a bunch of believers they had never met. Now that is love, isn't it? The money they gave that they didn't have, they gave to support a bunch of believers who were in worse shape that they had never met. Paul tells the Christians at Corinth when he writes a letter to them that the churches in Macedonia, get this, they gave beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They begged to give their money away. The money they didn't have to go support believers they had never met. So the Christians in Macedonia showed love toward the Christians in Jerusalem by giving sacrificially to them. And notice Paul also showed great love for them by traveling all over everywhere to take up this collection for them. He served them tirelessly, traveling hundreds of miles out of the way to gather money for their relief. Let me ask you, you ever done anything like that for someone? traveled hundreds of miles all over everywhere to gather support for someone. Paul did. He traveled all the way to Greece. And we, when he discovered a plot by the Jews to harm him, when he was getting ready to set sail to Jerusalem, to Syria, and on to Jerusalem, we're told, look, he turned back around and traveled hundreds of miles all the way back to Philippi and then on to Troas and eventually to 
Jerusalem. He loved the church, didn't he? He tirelessly and sacrificially served the church. And get this, he not only gathered money for the church in Jerusalem, he also gathered up believers from all of these different Gentile churches. Look at verses 4 and 5. This is very, very interesting, and we'll talk about it more in the weeks to come. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus. That's in the Macedonian area. And Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. So notice here that Paul takes a few believers from all of these different churches. We're told he took Sopater from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, a few believers from the churches in Galatia. You have Gaius from Derby and Timothy. You also have Christians from the church in Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. And notice that Luke is with them as well. Notice the word us there in verse 5. Luke is with them as well. So Paul is not only going out of his way to provide for the Christians in need in Jerusalem, but he's also gathering up all these Gentiles from all these different areas to go with them to Jerusalem to present this offering to the church in Jerusalem. And the reason why Paul is doing this is because he wants the, the Jews, the Christian Jews in Jerusalem to see all these Gentiles coming in, bringing these bags of money so that the bond between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians will be strengthened. Paul loved the church. He desired to see her unified. He served her tirelessly. He also served the church sacrificially. These areas where Paul was traveling, they were not safe. Though Paul left behind converts everywhere he went, he also left behind enemies as well. I was reading one commentary that was talking about how dangerous this area was for Paul at this time. Remember, he left behind mobs of Jews and Gentiles who hated him all throughout Macedonia. And the commentator said this, everywhere Paul went on this trip, everywhere he put his foot down, his life was in danger. Can you imagine that? Have you ever put yourself in harm's way for someone? Have you ever put yourself in harm's way for someone over and over and over and over and over again? Everywhere Paul went, he was in harm's way. But we learned that this was just characteristic of Paul. He gave very little thought to his own life. The only reason he fled from danger is so he could continue in the work of ministry for the cause of Christ and for the sake of his Christian brothers and sisters. The reason he flees from danger in Greece is so that he can continue to instruct the saints and reach the lost and so that he can bring this relief to the Christians in Jerusalem. We're going to learn that it's not safe in Jerusalem for Paul either, but he doesn't care. He's headed to Jerusalem to provide relief because he loves them. He loves the church. And he shows that by the way in which he sacrificially and tirelessly serves the church. And get this, you know what Paul asked for in return? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. That's love. 
Love gives. John MacArthur once said this, you can tell a man's love by his sacrifice. So true. Words are cheap. Do you hear me? Words are cheap. Get this. I want you to write this down. I'll say it a couple of times. God doesn't want us to demonstrate love through sentiment. He wants us to demonstrate love through service. Let me say it again. God doesn't want us to demonstrate love through sentiment. He wants us to demonstrate love through service. Christ asked Peter in John 21 on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Show me your love toward me by caring for my flock, by sacrificially serving my people. And boy, did Peter ever do that. Believers, how are you doing in this area of your life? What are you doing for the cause of Christ and for the sake of others? Are you serving Christ and others tirelessly and sacrificially or just when it feels like it or when it's convenient, if at all? Paul loved the church and proved how he loved her in the way in which he tirelessly and sacrificially served her. Well, that's about as far as we're going to get today. We will look at other ways that Paul demonstrated his great love for the church next week. But before we close this out, I want to take a moment to remind you once again of another who proved his great love for the church in the way in which he sacrificially served her by reminding you once again of the great sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I want to take you back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is telling the Corinthians of the great sacrifices that the churches in, in Macedonia made for the church in Jerusalem. And as he's doing that, he reminds them of the one who made the greatest sacrifice ever for the church. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. I love this verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Christ left the riches of heaven for us. He stepped off his throne and into the world in which he created. He became one of us. As Paul says in Philippians 2, though Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to cling to. Instead, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He became one of us and a lowly one of us at that. A son of a carpenter from the hick town of Nazareth. He lived a life of poverty. And as Paul says in Philippians 2, he lived a life of perfect obedience, a life we can never live. He was obedient throughout his life to the point of death, even a painful death on a shameful cross. He came to earth for our sakes. He lived the perfect life we can never live for our sakes. And he laid his life down for our sakes. Though we all like sheep, have turned away from the God who made us and created us to live in relationship with him. 
God demonstrated his great love for us by sending his son to us to live for us and to die for us and to rise for us so that we through faith in him alone could be forgiven of sin and made right with God and experience abundant and eternal life with him. Though Christ was rich, for our sakes he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. If you're here this morning, you're going at life on your own, apart from and opposed to God, believe me. Believe God when he says you're headed toward destruction. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. This is you. I urge you today, stop striving. Stop going at life on your own. Stop trying to carve out your own way. Stop kicking against the goads, as Jesus said to Paul. Instead, turn from your sin. Give your life up and over to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray.